Hey, it's Doug Sandler from the Turnkey Podcast. When I'm not creating my own podcast episodes, I'm listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast, hosted by Robert Miller. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Miller. My guest today is Gina Osborne. She has had a fascinating career. First in the Army, in the area of counterintelligence and espionage, a real life The Americans. And then she left the Army and she went into the FBI, where she did Asian organized crime. She's gone on to do a podcast and so many other things, which she's going to tell you all about. In the meantime, I chose as my featured song in this episode, song that I wrote for an album that we did in 2016 called The Queen's Carnival. And the song is called The Rescue, because after all, this is a woman that has rescued people in her career. And if you'd like a free download of this song, all you need to do is go to followyourdreampodcast.com slash roadmap hyphen song. And now, please welcome Gina Osborne to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you, Robert. I mean, how many things can you possibly succeed at in one lifetime? You've done it all. Oh, my gosh. Not everything. There's still some room for more. Okay. All right. Let's start from the beginning. Let's talk about you went into the army. Now, why was that? What was your calling to go into the army? Gosh. So I guess it was because I too am a dreamer. And back then it was in the eighties and I wanted to be this international woman of intrigue. And I was fascinated by the cold war, anything related to the KGB and the CIA. I wanted to be a part of that. And so one day, Two years into my college career, uh, a young man sat next to me and started telling me about the Army's counterintelligence program and how I can get experience and I could get my degree and I could live in the condos. I mean, it was total private Benjamin. And the next day I signed up and uh, spent six years in Europe chasing spies. Wait a minute. Don't you have to go in and go to Fort Bragg and go through all the basic training and all of that stuff? They, they can tell you right away you're going to be in counterintelligence? That's right. Well, I had to go through all that. That's the part that I wanted to forget. But yes, <laughs> and I didn't go to Fort Bragg. I went to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. I lived with 40 other women in my platoon, and uh, it was quite an experience getting through basic training, but I did it. <laughs> I can imagine. Did you have to have special training, I assume, for counterintelligence? Yes, that's at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. And so I did eight weeks in basic training, and then I think I did 12 weeks for the first part of my advanced individual training, and then I went back the following year to become a full-blown agent. Okay, so what does it mean to be a counterintelligence special agent? Not just a regular agent, you were a special agent. (laughs) This is true. So we investigated espionage, among other things, over uh, in Europe, where I was very, very fortunate to be assigned. I was in Belgium for about two and a half years, and then Frankfurt, Germany, for uh, about three and a half years after that. And so anybody who wants to uh, sell secrets, who is an army 
soldier or an army contractor, those are the people that we would investigate. You're talking about people that were selling U.S. secrets, I assume? That's correct. And uh-huh. during, that was during the Cold War, so they were selling it to uh, the East or to the Soviets. Is that stuff still going on? Uh, I'm sure it is, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> How sophisticated was the whole thing back then? Oh, gosh. Compared to today, not sophisticated at all. In fact, if you go through all of the old books and you look at the different tradecraft that was used, because we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have gosh, computers back then, so we really couldn't facilitate any sort of transaction of the classified material other than through dead drops. And so, uh, so we would follow these spies to find out where they were picking up their information. And yeah, it was definitely kind of just more interesting back then, I think, to work it more challenging. This sounds to me like it was a real life version of the Americans, the television show. Am I right? (laughs) It was, but I watched that show up until the episode where they put the guy in the trunk for like three days. And I'm like, no, I don't think we ever did that. But (laughs) only for a couple of hours, not for three days. (laughs) I can just imagine that the whole thing must have been almost surreal to deal with this kind of thing. Now, how many people were involved in this kind of espionage? Was it just an occasional soldier or somebody, or was there there a real, you know, active process here? There was, and during the 80s, that was the decade of the spy. That's when the Walker family, they gave information over, and uh, gosh, the, the cryptology, all sorts of, all of our codes um, were given, not all of our codes, but some of our codes were given. So it was definitely uh, an exciting time in the 80s to be working espionage cases. And I was in from 87 until 1992. And the last major case that I investigated was a gentleman by the name of Albert Sambale. He was in Baumholder, Germany, while his unit was over in Kuwait and they were busting the scuds out of the sky. And he was trying to give troop deployment information as well as other sensitive information to a Middle Eastern entity. So I was right across the street from his house when he got arrested. So I went from a cocktail waitress in Orange County, California to uh, watching a spy get arrested. So talk about dreams, dream coming true. Wow. I mean, were these people selling out the country for money or for ideology, or did it go across the board? Across the board, all of the above. So it just, you know, some people did it for money, other people did it for power. Uh, It it just depended on what their set of circumstances were and and what drove them to do such a thing. And they're, they're all still probably in prison at this point, huh? Yeah, and I'll tell you, there are two different people or types of people who aren't very popular in prison, and that's child predators and spies. <laughs> the other the inmate population don't like those. It's interesting how they have the rankings in there. Well, exactly. All right, so you were getting all these spies in 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 Europe. I love the European theater. I love. I didn't even know if they still used phrases like that. It was like in World War II, they used that phrase, the European theater. Yeah. So how did you get from the army to the FBI? It was a long road. I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to get my four-year degree, earn my four-year degree while I was in the military through the University of Maryland. And then I came back and I wanted to work for the CIA originally. That didn't happen. And the FBI was right around the corner uh, from... (laughs) not happening. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, apparently, you know, when one door closes, another door opens. 
And I was very, very fortunate. I was assigned in the Los Angeles office uh, with duty in Orange County. And so my first arrest was across the street from my high school. <laughs> it was very convenient for you, is what you said. It really was. <laughs> now, why was the CIA at the top of your list, though? You know, I just thought, you know, not really knowing about it as much as I learned a lot about it when I was in the military. And um, I don't know, but what I wanted to do after spending six years or over six years in, in Europe, I wanted to come home and stay in the United States. And so that was one thing that I was allowed to do with the FBI. And I was very fortunate, like I said, to be stationed at home. And I just learned so many different things. I think I may have worked counterintelligence for the FBI for maybe a month. And then I wound up getting a civil rights case where Thai girls were being brought into the United States and forced into prostitution. And uh, I wound up working Asian organized crime from there. And who would have known? I, I mean, I never would have guessed that, but uh, it was a fascinating time working Asian organized crime and little Saigon with my, uh, with my local partners. Back in the 90s. <laughs> Were there similarities of any kind between what you did for the Army and what you did for the FBI? You know, I think that the common key, the, the common thread for all of it, I have a degree in psychology, and it's all about communication, communicating with people, interviewing people, creating trust with people, trusting relationships so people will share information with you. So I used that quite a bit uh, in my in my FBI career. And, and to me, everything is about building relationships, whether you're working on a task force with another agency or, again, working with a witness or working with an informant. It's all about communication and rapport building. How much of the successes in this area, I don't mean yours in particular, are just luck because somebody, you know, comes to you or reveals something or you just stumble into something? Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't happen, you just have to keep persisting, persisting, persisting. But, you know, I think everything's supposed to happen for a reason. And so in all of my cases, I was able to, you know, expand out uh, my network just so I would have the resources to be able to do all the cases that I did. So I was very, very fortunate. So looking back, it was, again, a dream career. I was really um, just privileged to be a part of it. Well, that's interesting. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from originally? Orange County, California. Okay. So what was your dream early on? What did you want to do with your life? My dream early on was to be a writer. I used to write Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days episodes whenever <laughs> I was in the seventh and eighth grade. I wrote an entire film when I was in high school, and I've always taken writing classes. That's always been something that I wanted to do with the experience that I gathered. And when I retired from the FBI in 2018, that was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to write for television. So I'm in my second act and uh, I'm working with a variety of people in Hollywood to try and get uh, one of my TV show ideas on the screen. So we'll see how that works out. So that's very, very cool. So you started out with a, an idea to be a writer. You met somebody in college and you decided to sign up for the army and uh, you got way late into that for about 18 years, if I remember correctly. <laughs> well, well, 28 years, but I always, I wanted to be a spy. That was part of the international woman of intrigue bit. <laughs> I see. The Austin Powers kind of thing, huh? Exactly. But you came back to writing. I think that's really cool. Tell me more about that. What is it that you're doing there? You know, I never really left writing. I've kept over 200 journals in my lifetime, and I've always written, been writing some sort of script, uh, whether a television script or a movie script at any given time. I love to write dialogue. 
And probably about seven years before I actually retired, because I stayed in Los Angeles pretty much my entire career, other than my 18-month stint in Washington, D.C. at headquarters. But I networked and uh, developed relationships and found writing partners and a a very big director I, I collaborated with. I was really fortunate to do that. And so it's just a process. And so I wanted to tell stories. I knew that's what I wanted to do. So um, I'm doing that through trying to get these television shows going and through my podcast. I think that's uh, definitely storytelling. And uh, also, I'd like to write a book. So um, yeah, so writing is my full-time job. In addition to, I do some coaching and, and again, the podcast, but that's something that I'm really, really focusing my efforts on right now. We'll talk about the podcast in a second, but I want to learn a little bit more about the writing because most people will tell you that what you really should be writing when you start out to be a writer are things that you're familiar with. So was your writing, at least initially after you left the Army and the FBI, was it more related to those careers that you had? Yes, it's all a female driven lead in law enforcement. So it's all law enforcement, female lead type shows or more than one. Yes, (laughs) Yes, because <laughs> that is what I know. I know that for sure. <laughs> I can imagine. How many other women were there in the uh, in the service and in the FBI in your areas? Were you unique or was, was it part of a group? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely unique. When I joined the military back in the 80s, I think fewer than 10% of all of the soldiers were women. And then in 1996, when I joined the FBI, it was about 14% of the agents were women. And when I left the FBI as an executive, there were, I think it got up to 20%. So we only increased the our numbers by 6% over a 22-year period. But I was more often than not the only woman in the room. And when I became an executive, I would say probably 95% of all of the agents and the computer scientists and the analysts that worked with me were were men. You know, I just heard uh, on television recently, the fellow that is now the head of the Air Force. He's a black general and he's a very, you know, celebrated man. And he was talking about how few African-American officers there are in the Air Force even today. And kind of like you were just relating, that the increase has been so small over the years. Why do you think that is? You know, I I can say, I I can speak for the, well, probably for both the military and the FBI. When you become an FBI agent, you don't know where you're going to be assigned. And the average age going through the FBI is 31 years old. So by then, it's different for men than it is for women. You, You know, usually women have kids by the time they're 31, or they're already established in a career, or they're married, and their spouse isn't going to want to just pick up and move to go anywhere USA, you know, and they don't find out until about five weeks uh, into the academy. So I think that is definitely an obstacle for for some women. And it's just a a male-dominated field where, you know, maybe women aren't interested in in, uh, going through the military or going into law enforcement. But uh, I can tell you the women who do do it are absolutely amazing. And I've established great relationships with uh, my female counterparts, but there's just so few. And the higher I got into the ranks of the FBI, there were very, very few women. Mm. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your podcast, because this is for remarkable women. Tell us about this. (laughs) So I feature remarkable women who have made it to the top in male-dominated fields. 
So I think this is fascinating. I mean, just because I've done it and I, my first season was 15 episodes and I interviewed 14 women and I, 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 there was another interview that I had done last year and I thought, okay, are they going to talk about the same thing? Are they going to talk about imposter syndrome? Are they going to talk about, you know, just the things that women deal with and each of them had their own unique story about how they made it to where they are. I had a woman, or I have a woman who owns a $200 million petroleum company, and there are just so few women in working in the oil industry. Another woman has a $60 million construction company. So really, it's a great opportunity for not only women, but men as well to hear how these really powerhouse individuals make it to the top of their industry. So I, I really enjoyed doing the podcast. Did most of them do it on their own? Did they marry into it? Did they inherit? What was the profile? No, most of them did it on their own. I had uh, one woman, She, her name is Brenda Robinson. She was the very first African-American female pilot in the Navy and to fly for American Airlines. Hmm. And it, you know, what she talks about is combating fear, you know, here she, she could fly seven different aircraft and she would land on aircraft carriers in the middle of the ocean. And I asked her, you know, were you afraid to do that? And she went on to talk about how you can't be afraid if you know what you're doing. So that was a good lesson for anybody is if you're prepared and you know what you're doing, then you're not going to have fear. I still think it would be a little scary to try and land on an <laughs> aircraft carrier. And you got to make sure that those rubber bands get caught and they hold, right? Exactly. But she says she was too busy. She was too busy to be afraid. And she would, and she knew what she was doing. She was focusing on all of the different instruments inside of her aircraft. But, you know, fascinating stories, uh, stories like that. But no, they all are independent women that started their own, they're the founders of their own companies. So it was really interesting. Well, I have two daughters myself, and uh, I always encourage them to go into whatever it was that they wanted to do. And it's a different world for women now than it was way back when. I think there there is more opportunity now. Sure. And the reason why I call the podcast Lead Like a Lady, if someone would have accused me of leading like a lady when I was new into the military or in law enforcement, I would have been offended by that. But the more I grew and the more I evolved as a leader, I realized instead of taking on other people's traits, maybe men's traits that were surrounding me, being all tough and rumble, I embraced my feminine skill sets. And that's really what we talk about on the podcast is authentic leadership. That's when you really begin to shine, when you have the courage to be yourself and, and, and draw from your, your experiences and not taking on other people's traits. And you're also doing some speaking, you say? I am. I'm a keynote speaker. I've got, uh, I go out and I speak about working in a male dominated field. And I'm also uh, specialized in helping people navigate chaos, crisis, and change in their business and their lives because I've responded to a variety of different major, major attacks, whether it be terrorist attacks or cyber attacks. And so I talk about how I led through chaos, crisis, and change and uh, share that with my audiences. I'm interested. You just mentioned uh, all the crises that we we live through. What's your view on what's happening these days with Russia and with China and the various attacks that we read about that have come against the United States? Uh, I think it's terrible. I was uh, in charge of the investigation where North Korea hacked into Sony Pictures Entertainment, so I got to see it up front and how just 
how that worked out. But when you look at Russia and I mean, it's the same thing that we were talking about from the eighties, it's just elevated to stealing the information digitally versus getting it from a human asset. So it is very, very disturbing. And we on the government side really, really need to continue to um, increase resources and knowledge when it comes to the cyber game in order to be able to combat that and prevent those attacks from happening. It is amazing to me as a layperson how creative and effective they have been at breaking into all these different cyber, you know, routes uh, everywhere. You know, we, we, I'm sure we have so much attention focused on trying to prevent them from doing it, and yet it still happens. We keep reading about this all the time. Well, it's all about the weakest link, and unfortunately, the weakest link happens to be our people, the human link, the human element. If there's somebody in your business that clicks on that link and allows the malware to come into your business, then that's that's how it's going to get in there. So you can have all of the firewalls, all of the software, all of the hardware that you have. But if you have a single person who's going to allow the enemy into your system, then that's the problem. So I go out and when I was with the FBI, I would talk about prevention all the time and and really, really strengthening your workforce so that that it doesn't happen that way. I think we all get emails almost all the time where there's an attachment or something and we think we recognize the person or maybe or maybe it sounds official and we click on the wrong thing and you, you know you just hope that you you're not screwing yourself up that way. Yeah, but it happens. It happens all the time because the 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 actors, the cyber actors are getting better and better and better. And uh, I mean, I don't know how many times I've stopped myself whenever I see um, a package is coming through UPS. It's like, wait a minute, I didn't order a package. What is this? But then you stop yourself and think, okay, wait a minute, this must be a scam. And even the banking ones, they look pretty legitimate. But if you go to the URL, you know, look at or the sender. Yes. And if it's not Chase Bank, and usually Chase Bank doesn't ask you to click on links anyway. But if you look at the senders, you'll often find that it's a suspicious uh, address. No, you're 100% right. That's what I do all the time. If, if I get something that looks like it's from Apple or from a bank or whatever, and you hit, you click on the sender, and it's some guy in Senegal or some set of numbers and letters that you don't recognize, that can't be legitimate. Exactly. Well, exactly. We're learning in small steps, at least. <laughs> so you know that this is a podcast for and about dreamers. I believe that everybody's got a dream and most people, unfortunately, never get to really follow through on their dream. People like yourself and, uh, and myself and others are lucky and they are able to follow through on their dream. But I always ask my guests if they have any advice for the dreamers out there that for whatever reason have not followed through on their dream. What would you say to these folks? I would say have a roadmap, create a roadmap and just Follow that roadmap and persistence and determination. That's that's what it's all about. I mean, it's not, if you look at people like you, it wasn't easy, I'm sure. And it took you a while to get to where you wanted to be. And, and it's the same with me because I'm I'm working to get my television shows made and and I'm experiencing rejection as well. But you just have to, you have to have that determination and persistence, and you have to believe that it's going to happen because the minute you stop believing then it's game over because that's that's where people start going, veering off and doing other things that are safer when uh, they lose faith and uh, lose faith in, them, in themselves and their dream. Very true. 
people have a fear of failure and they think if they fail, people are going to laugh at them. People won't respect them any longer. And yet all the people that are successful in this world all failed multiple times and they pick themselves up and they get back up and they do it again and they figure out a way around the problem or over the problem or under the problem. And that's what you have to do. Persistence, 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 right? I believe that for sure. I want to thank my guest, Gina Osborne, for being on the show. Uh, Gina, where can people find you and reach you and follow you? You can find me at uh, GinaLOsborne.com. And Robert, for your listeners, I would like to offer two ebooks that are I wrote that are free. If you go to my website, one is uh, how to work in a male-dominated field if you're a woman. And the other one is uh, eliminating chaos from your business and your life. So if they go to GinaLOsborne.com, they can get that. And then you can also find me at GinaLOsborne on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. Very cool. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am your host again, Robert Miller. Remember, you can get your complimentary dream roadmap my five-step method to help you to pursue and succeed at your dream just by going to followyourdreampodcast.com slash dreamroadmap. And please feel free to email me at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. I answer everybody's emails. And all of my music is available at projectgrandslam.com and the pgsstore.com. And if you liked what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And now you're going to hear the entire song that we played a little bit of at the beginning of this episode called The Rescue. The song is on the album The Queen's Carnival that I did with my band Project Grand Slam in 2016. It's an instrumental song that I wrote after feeling that I had been rescued personally by a particular event that had occurred in my life. I hope you like it. Thank you for listening and see you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com and you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.